Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 23 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Don't do your job, treat people poorly, give no effort, and have a count-me-out attitude. Is this who you want to be? Is this what you want the others around you to be? Every day of your entire career? To what end? To make a lackluster management suffer so they'll notice and have an epiphany and change? The hard truth is that they won't. They have their positions, they keep getting paid and taking vacations, and the machine will roll on, despite of and perhaps in spite of a few rusty cogs. The people that will truly suffer from your choices are the people that have called you to help them. Those that respond with you, and whether or not you want to admit it, you. You may think that they are stealing the opportunity of an enjoyable career from you, but you are stealing it from yourself. And if you rise to be the firefighter that you should be, could be, at some point wanted to be, those closest to you and those you protect will have the best chance of surviving and thriving. But it will make that management look good. It seems to be a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. And it probably enrages you even more that those in charge probably know it. It's unjust, right? So what to do about it all? Try to ascend the ranks and make the changes? Maybe you don't want to play the game. Or maybe it's not the kind of work you're passionate about. Seems like dead ends all around. Jordan Peterson has said that the best way to solve an intractable problem is to model an alternative mode of being. This is a paraphrase of Gandhi's Be the Change You Want to See in the World. It might seem patronizing to you, but there's teeth to it. If you do everything that is expected of you, and more, you have legs to stand on. Integrity and credibility. It doesn't guarantee that it will be easy, but you can't be so easily dismissed. You can be frustrated with your workplace and still love your job. You can fight without living in anger. You can make peace with yourself about your choices and sleep at night. My guest this episode has walked the journey from disenchantment to anger and frustration to self-accountability and ownership, reigniting purpose and meaning in himself and countless others by distilling the tenets of our calling to four bedrocks. Do your job, treat people right, all in attitude, all at effort. Here's my talk with Mark Von Abben. You did episodes with Behind the Shield and the guys at Fit to Fight Fire, and they covered quite a bit very well of your backstory and a few topics with you. So I want to kind of leave that as it is and steer people to those if they want to learn more. And then we can pick up from there and add on. Having listened to those, there's some more things that I want to dig deeper into with you. So you and I talked a little bit before about a rebirth into the fire service or being more involved. Talk to me about the real catalyst of the people that sort of inspired you and drove you towards it. Yeah, I think the real catalyst for me in terms of getting reengaged in the fire service was certainly there were company officers that I worked for in, in my organization that helped jumpstart that. And what really start, jumpstarted it for me was I was working a shift in another firehouse that I didn't normally work at. And then there was a captain there who said, hey, come on in the office. I know you're into live fire training and things like that. There's a class I think you should look at that looks like it's going to be fun. I'm going to take it. And it was down in Monterey, which is about an hour and a half from here. And it had the live fire component of the class. And it was actually a, a rapid intervention class. And it's called Nobody Gets Left Behind. And went down there. And there were a number of people that were involved in it. Guys like Jake Pelk, Glenn McGuire, a guy named Jeff Seaton, who, you know, they're all firefighters from around here. And a number of other firefighters taught from around the area. And it blew my mind. Took the class and was challenged in a way that I'd never been challenged before. And it was more difficult than anything I'd ever done. And I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. And just the teaching style that the instructors had really spoke to me. It really reached me on a pretty deep level. And so started working with them, went and took the class a number of times. I think I took the class three times as a student. 
and then asked if I could come on as an instructor. And they were kind enough to bring me on. And I started teaching my own classes through that. And then through kind of discovering that there's a world outside of my own department, started looking around to see what else is out there. And I discovered Fire Service Warrior and the work of Chris Brennan. And through that, I met guys like Brian Brush and Gary Lane and a number of other people that were involved with Fire Service Warrior at the time. And I liked their mindset and I got into writing. That's what, you know, it was kind of the catalyst to get me going and kind of the kick in the ass that I needed to sort of, I don't even know if it was reignite. I don't even think that I knew what I didn't know before I went and took some of those classes. I thought I was a pretty good firefighter and thought I kind of knew what I was doing, as a lot of people do. But I think once you go out and you see what else is out there and you really start learning from people from other organizations that have different experiences than you do, I think that's what really did it for me, was just learning from other people and getting their perspective and seeing how good they were in their particular discipline and how far they took their depth of knowledge. It really woke me up and made me want to be a part of it and brought me back to some of my childhood, some of those things that I saw my dad doing when he was coaching and that sort of thing. So I don't know there was as much a rebirth as an awakening. Again, I didn't even understand that my eyes were closed to some stuff. We're pretty narrow focused when we just are operating within our own organization. There's a lot of great stuff in every organization, but I think that we operate in silos. And I think getting out there and, and learning from other people is really what woke me up. Once you got fully involved rolling, how have you kept up with how it's manifested? Well, the first thing that everybody needs to understand about Fully Involved is it all started as a complete accident. The leadership project with Fully Involved started as an accident. The blog started as a complete accident. It's just been something that's evolved very organically. And as far as keeping up with it or what's next, I don't know. It's just something that I try to work at every single day. And you know, most of what I do with Fully Involved, most of it's just all pep talks that I have with myself, the things that I post online or put on the blog or on Instagram or any of the social media outlets that I have. It's all reminders to myself. It's something that either happens to me throughout the day, something stokes my thoughts, and I'm like, I need to be reminded of this. And so that's more of what it is. In terms of how it's manifested, the community's just grown, um, and I don't even know how far it reaches, really. It's just been kind of a cool thing that's sort of taken on a life of its own. But keeping up with it, it consumes a lot of my time. I'm trying to get better about being a little bit more balanced in terms of when I'm home, you know, making sure that I sort of keep office hours with it, where I check messages and I check emails and things like that from a certain time to a certain time. And then I kind of shut it off because people have instant access to you. It's definitely been something that I didn't expect. It's been a really pleasant surprise just to see, you know, how it's grown and, and see where it's going and who knows where it'll go, you know? I think the best things are born that way because your intent is pure when you start out, but then you're faced with it becoming what it is and then you have to somehow like you said fit it into your life you have a choice right there's an opportunity and a choice there that's kind of the struggle sometimes people have asked me where are you going with it my honest answer is i don't know i'm just going to ride the wave wherever it takes me and i've been very fortunate to have a lot of people that are involved in this community that are willing to step up and help and you know offer so many things there's so many people that are so gracious with their own time to try to help move this thing along it's just been really cool to see what it's really helped me gain perspective on is it's helped me become less cynical. I think as I look around and the bigger this, you know, whatever Philly involved is seems to get, it just seems to me that there's more and more good people out there that want to do the right thing. that want to be a part of something positive. When Philly involved first started, if you look at my writing and my posts and stuff, I was kind of angry. Now it's become a little bit of a different message. It's more of a keep going. We're, we've got the momentum. We're doing this together. And, Let's just keep pushing. 
keep pushing this thing where we're doing things on our own together, you know, winning our individual battles every single day, wanting to get to a better place. It sounds kind of idealistic. And when I put it in those kind of terms, it sounds kind of silly, but that's kind of how I see it, you know? But I think movements need to be ideals because we need something to shoot for. It always feels to me like it's owned by the people. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, it's about winning your individual battle. So it's taking the message and the people out there, they're the ones who have to put those words into action and actually do it and live it every single day or else it's nothing. And if you track the metric on social media, we've got some fairly insignificant numbers in terms of like what some blogs will get. There's ridiculous blogs out there that have millions and millions and millions of followers. Um, we have a fairly modest following, but I think that the following that we have on Fully Involved, the people are into it and they actually believe in it. And I think that that's the difference. The people that follow Fully Involved and are a part of this thing, they're the ones who believe in it and are actually putting those words into action. And you can see it. I mean, you can feel it. But, you know, how do you measure a movement? I don't know. For a while, I was trying to figure out how you measure that and I don't think that it's that important anymore. The numbers don't really mean a whole lot to me. It's the positive feedback that I get from a lot of different angles. You know, the pictures that I get of people out there training or, or teaching or, you know, putting the big four up on the wall. One of the firefighters who attended the session that I did in Spokane, Washington, brought me this probably three foot by three foot Maltese cross with the big four on it. And he made it in his metal shop and it's powder coated and it's beautiful. You know, that's when you know that it's reaching people, when they want to create something and give something back to you to show that it means something to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's how a thought actually becomes reality. Yeah, and it's super humbling because, like I said, it's completely unexpected, and it came from a place where I was frustrated with my situation, not even really understanding how frustrated I was with my situation, with myself, the things that I was struggling with, and trying to find an outlet for it. And it's gone through a couple of different iterations over the course of almost, gosh, almost 10 years now, but not quite. But you know, I think if you look at where Fully Involved is gone, it started off as we're pissed about this and we want to fix it. And then we went about trying to fix it. And now we're, we're in the, the phase of trying to maintain it and keep that going and looking forward to the future and training up the next generation of firefighters you know, or whoever else to uphold those values and, and make sure that we're doing those four things that we say that we're going to do. Doing our jobs like pros, treating each other right, giving all that effort, being present and accountable and having an all-in attitude. Do you struggle now with trying to make personal connections with people that reach out to you? You mentioned the volume and you have to set office hours. Is that on your mind? Is it hard to do? It's not so overwhelming that I can't answer most personal messages. And I try to because I do like connecting with people. And, and that's really what Fully Involved is about, is about you know the connection that we all have to one another. And everybody is connected in some way and, and we're an extension of the other and that sort of thing. I think the thing that's hard sometimes is being too available because I try to be available to people and I do have people that reach out to me sometimes that are really troubled. Some people struggle with addiction and I've had people reach out to me about that. Some people are struggling with suicide and things like that. And those are the difficult ones. Those are the ones where it really, you know, makes you pause and you really want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And you know, I'm not always that person to reach out to. I can try to help. But as far as connecting with people, yeah, I really do enjoy connecting with people. And that's what I really you know, like about getting out and traveling and, and actually meeting people and shaking people's hands. That's what makes it real is when people come back and tell me what it means to them. And that's why that feedback is so important. And that's when, when people do reach out to me, that's the validation, that evidence that we're actually making a difference. But when people are coming to me and they have real struggles and real demons, that's when it becomes hard for me because then I become much more personally invested and want to make sure that they get the right direction, you know? 
But because your circle or network has grown so dramatically because of this, you must have a significant Rolodex to sort of like, I know the person you should talk to. You can make quick references. I do. I've got a, a good network of people that I can refer people to. And I mean, people ask me technical questions sometimes about, hey, what do you guys use for this? I'm like, I'm not the guy to answer that question, but he is or she is. That's also the beauty of being connected the way that we are now. You can instantly connect with somebody from thousands of miles away. But as far as maintaining that personal connection, I tell everybody I'm just a firefighter from Northern California who's trying to figure it out every day like everybody else is. And if you can't connect with people, then I think people will kind of see you as a phony. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And it maybe necessarily isn't the right job because that's what we're supposed to be doing when we're actually responding. And I think that's the hard thing sometimes, too. The farther you go in the job, I think sometimes, you know, you become a little bit jaded. And I think that's the struggle sometimes is you see so much and you've been through so many things, you almost become sort of numb to a lot of things that are going on. And you can't forget that what isn't necessarily a big deal to us is a big deal to somebody else who doesn't deal with that type of thing every single day. And if they've made the decision to call us, we have to get our minds right before we arrive on scene and make sure that we're there in that moment and not someplace else. So you mentioned not really seeing where it's going to go or have a plan for where this is going to end up, but do you worry about running out of things to say on the concept or topics that you're asked to speak on? Is it okay for the movement to reach like a maximum growth point, becoming sort of fully grown, that it doesn't need to be expanding and exponentially to remain relevant and impactful? Okay, that was a multi-part question. That reminds me of when I took my oral boards for when I took the captain's test, the one that I finally passed. They said, we're going to ask you three questions. And I'm like, oh, okay, three questions. That should be easy. And each question had like 35 parts. <laughs> you know, they ask one question and, and like three quarters of the way through the question, I stopped the proctors because they were from another agency. I said, hey, I, I'm sorry. I, I can't remember what the first question was. Do I fear I might run out of things to say? Absolutely. And relevance is something that is important to people. But I think if, again, like you said earlier, if it's something that's pure and something that's coming from a good place, I read a lot too, and I observe a lot, and I try to watch what's going on around me. So in that regard, I think if you're a keen observer of what's going on around you, I don't think you ever lose things to think about or talk about, because there's always something going on that's interesting or new. So I try to maintain that beginner's mind as much as I can. But yeah, I mean, if you don't think that trying to put out something salient every single day in terms of like what I do with Fully Involved, it's frustrating sometimes because I get tired of listening to myself talk. Because you're like, oh, okay, I've said this, I've said this, I've said this, I've said this a million times. But it's kind of like when you're raising kids. Somebody said to me one time, because I was so frustrated, I keep telling my kids the same things over and over and over again. And it just seems like they don't listen. But they reminded me that our job as parents is to remind them and remind them and remind them and, and repeat the same message over and over again about being a good person, about doing the right thing, so that eventually it sticks. And then when they become adults, they're the ones that are carrying on those values as well. And so that sort of helped shift my perspective in terms of if people are following the blog or following the page, they've been bombarded with these messages for the better part of you know, almost 10 years now. And, and maybe it's starting to sink in, you know, and, and maybe it's starting to reach other people because the people that follow the blog are, you know, repeating the same messages out there too, and they're holding each other accountable. But as far as being worried about running out of things to say, yeah, that crosses my mind quite a bit. So on the same line of thought, do you think we can become fully grown as people and firefighters? So as to say, you can become everything that the world and the service requires of you, and beyond that's kind of icing on the cake. Can we actually achieve what a true minimum standard is, and everything above and beyond that is extra? 
No, I don't think so. I don't think that that's ever really possible. I think it's, we're a work in progress. And, you know, as you asked that question, what popped into my mind is, you know, Aaron Fields, as I recall, he says something like, you know, we're never going to meet the expectations of the public. And I'm totally paraphrasing. And he would say it much more eloquently than I'm going to. But, you know, they expect us to show up and be superheroes and do everything completely right and show up and crush it every single time. And that's what we got to shoot for, but we're never going to achieve it. But he says, work is the answer. We just got to keep working towards that. And that is the journey, trying to get there. I think if you're trying to get there and you're constantly working to be the best person or the best firefighter that you can be, and you're very mindful of that, and you think about those things with your interactions with your brothers and sisters and the public, I think if you're working towards that, there isn't a whole lot more that anybody can ask of you. Because something has to be said for the effort that people put forth. There's no metric for it necessarily, but... You know, it's something that's really important, working hard towards that goal. But I don't think that we can ever become that perfect firefighter, that perfect person. I don't think that person existed. And if they did exist, they got nailed to a cross. You mentioned when you first started out, you sense when you read back on your original post, they're a bit angry and then it shifted. When you're trying to reach people with this message to inspire perseverance, persistence and growth, it's kind of low hanging fruit to play the doom and gloom card and people can pitch like an us versus them mentality and strategy. I think of the adage of it bleeds, it leads that refers to the media and how because of our work, we can trend toward thinking that the world is fraught with tragedy and danger when actually things are getting better and much safer than they've ever been. Why did you choose to approach the service with the voice and the message in the way that you have? Well, I didn't originally choose it. I mean, when I first started the blog, I was pissed. I was angry at myself. I was angry at things that were going on in my organization as it pertained to me. Looking back, I think I was much more egocentric. And I think that that's just part of the maturation process. As you work your way through your life or your career, you know, when you come into the fire service, I think that you're very idealistic. And in life, just in general, when you're younger, you're very idealistic and you think that things should just be a certain way just because you believe that they should be that way. And then you sort of work your way into, because you're frustrated with people not seeing things the same way that you do, you become almost radicalized. And that's kind of where I was when Fully Involved started. I was super gung-ho for a lot of things and I was extremely radical about a lot of stuff. Like you said, if it bleeds, it leads. If you don't do it this way, you're going to die. And in a nutshell, that was kind of how I would approach things. You need to know how to do this because this is serious and you could die. Well, yes, okay. So it's a very dangerous job, et cetera, et cetera. But how much traction are you really going to get with that stuff? I mean, you'll get some people to come on board, but you're going to alienate a lot of people if you can't put your information out there in a way that's palatable for a lot of people. And so, you know, you go from being an idealist when you're new to being this radical, pissed off person. And then I think that you become much more of a pragmatist the older that you get and the further that you go in the career or in life. You just start to become much more matter of fact and you find a way to put your message out there. And I think that that's been sort of the evolution of fully involved as I started off very idealistic and very radical. And if you look at it, there was a lot of us versus them. You know, we're going to do this. And if you don't like it, fuck you. Now it's been more of a, hey, let's do this together. It's become less in your face. And if you're not on board with us, then you suck. And I think, again, it's me getting older and, and changing my perspective on things. And I think being a parent does that to you. It's humbling. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The term rogue was thrown around a lot early on. Where that came from was I was at a cocktail party over Christmas a couple of years ago and was talking to Jerry Smith, who's the soccer coach for Santa Clara University on the women's side. And we were talking about his leadership style. And he said, you know, the most important people that I got to get a hold of and capture and make sure that they're on board are those rogue individuals on my team who 
don't like me as a coach, don't believe in where I'm going and are actively working against me, but they're leaders on the team. The other women will follow their lead and they have influence. And if I can get them on board, then we're going to go a lot farther because there's people that are on board of the program. There's people that could go either way. And then there's those rogue individuals that are going to work against me. And I, I was like, holy shit, I totally identify with this. That's me. I'm one of those rogue individuals who's not necessarily going along with the program, you know, excited for the job and excited to lead and do all that stuff. But am I leading in the right way? I don't know. That's where that shift sort of started. And so that's where that term came from, you know, because people would call us rogue individuals for being out there training and being pissed off for excellence. If we can quote Ray Lewis from the Baltimore Ravens, meaning we're going to work our asses off and have an edge about us and chip on our shoulder. And that'll carry you for a while. But that's where that whole rogue notion came from. So what? Call us rogues. And we'll wear that as a badge of honor. And, you know, I still talk about that. Because you'll find those individuals, and I've had to have talks with younger people sometimes that are very good at what they do and very influential, but the way that they're going about things isn't sustainable long-term, and I had to learn some of those lessons myself. It's good to have that edge. It's good to want to work hard and want to get better, and there's a way of going about it in a way that's going to be palatable for more people, and then you're able to move everybody forward together if you can package your message the right way. And I had to learn myself People will tell you sometimes it's not the message, it's the messenger. And when people first tell you that when you're younger, you're like, well, fuck you. you know, tell me that it's not what you're saying, it's you, right? That's what they're really saying to you. And so, you know, you have to figure out a way to adjust your message if you really believe in it and you really want it to go places and you want it to sink in with people and resonate with people. you got to find a way to communicate it effectively. And that's one of the things that I've really had to learn. So our predecessors hoped that their efforts wouldn't have been for naught and that we would be and do better than they did, the same as we hope for the next generation. Do you think we as a service have taken up the hose line from giants and continued to improve things? Oh, sure. I think that while we don't have the volume of work or the body of work that a lot of the people that came before us did, I think that the access that we have to the knowledge that they gleaned through their careers of fighting fire and the things that we know through science now, we're probably better trained than we've ever been. And I think that that gives us the ability to be more effective. And there's a big interest in being good firefighters right now. And in terms of taking up the hose line and carrying on the tradition, yeah, I think that we're doing that. There's so many people out there that want to do a good job, that care about doing it right and doing right by the people that we swore to protect. You know, and there's that movement going on right now that we got to remind ourselves why we're here and it's for them. That's good to be reminded of sometimes too. I use our department as sort of a microcosm for what's going on around the country. And I always say that I would take, you know, an engine company from my department, you know, pick any engine company on any given day and just yank them out of the system and drop them in the busiest system anywhere in the United States and our people would hold their own. We didn't get there overnight. We've gone through some growing pains and things like that, but a lot of people working together trying to drive towards a common goal. We're at a place right now where even though we're a small department, I would put our people up against anybody anywhere. And I think that we would be just as effective and just as aggressive and do just as good a job. So as a service you know, around the world, there's leaders and people driving innovation and change that are just as good as anybody throughout the course of history. It's hard for us to recognize that sometimes when they're right in front of us or they're our contemporaries. So maybe we need to recognize the balance because we can be focused on shortfalls and where we need to improve. And maybe we need to celebrate that we have done some justice to what was before us. We are doing the right thing in general. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think if you're not taking pause and turning around and looking back at the body of work that we've created as a fire service, if you don't give yourself credit for the wins that you do get, you're always losing. And we're pretty hard on ourselves, right? I mean, we always want to win. We always want to get it right every single time. And, you know, there's a lot of trial and error that goes into getting it right. But I, by and large, yes, I think we're doing it right. It's interesting for you to mention how you started out angry and then it shifted to a more realistic approach, but the passion hasn't changed. That's something I wonder about that people maybe struggle with always needing a struggle. They need some kind of internal or external battle to fight or they're going to lose their passion when actually that isn't the truth. If you find something that you're interested in or that you love, you're going to be passionate about it. Where the anger comes in is when people won't listen or when that love for whatever it is is unrequited. And I think that that was you know, where a lot of my anger came from. I went out and I learned from some of the best in the business and saw how passionate and how great these people were. And I wanted to be like them and I wanted to emulate them. And I went and took those classes three and four times and I found so much value in it. And I wanted to bring it back to my organization and share it with my brothers and sisters so that we could all be better and we could all be safer. As I look back on it, that's where a lot of that anger came from was, hey, I care so deeply about this and I'm so into it. And I care so deeply about you as my brothers and sisters here in this organization. This could help us. This could help us if somebody gets in trouble. I mean, this could save them. And the eye rolling and the shoulder shrugging and getting put off by that stuff. You feel like you're some sort of a jilted lover or an excommunicated family member. And so you keep trying to sell this thing and then it turns into frustration. And that's where the anger came from. Then once we finally got someone to listen to what we were trying to do and people said, wow, this is really good stuff. One thing led to another and it led to another and it led to another. And then as you start having some success and you start getting that buy-in from your brothers and sisters, that's where I think that it starts to turn around. And that's why I always say it's so important to capture those passionate individuals and get that energy going in the right direction. You know, you're going to have those angry individuals who feel like they're not being listened to or they feel like they're ignored. And if you continue to ignore them, you're going to have a big problem. You're going to get somebody who you may not ever get back, who is going to be that problem child within your organization forever. But if you can channel that energy in the right direction and say, hey, what is this? Tell me about this. Oh, wow, this has legs. This is important. This is something that can make our organization better. Let's do this together. In exchange for giving you this opportunity to teach and bring what you learned outside the organization, to bring this love of the game to our organization, I need to get more on board with the program. I need you to tone down the rhetoric and tone down the shit talk. We'll support you. And in exchange for that, you need to support the organization. If you can't do that, then we're going to have a problem. And it's not going to be everything. I mean, you're not going to be successful with everything you bring forward. But if you have subject matter experts within your organization, you should listen to them. You should at least give them a platform to exercise their knowledge and their love for the game so they become those game changers within your organization, not these problem children. From what I've seen, your family's a part of the fully involved movement. So what impact has that had on them, inspiring and modeling for your kids, the extra workload? Does it take away from anything that they want to pursue? No, I'm extremely fortunate because I've got a good support system here. My wife is a stay-at-home mom and she runs the household. But like I was saying earlier, you know, one of the most humbling things is being a parent, you know, in terms of the fully involved movement and the kids being a part of it and all that stuff. They know exactly what the big four is and they can recite them to you and they know about excellence is my responsibility and that sort of thing. And I have to remind them to do their chores all the time. I have to remind them to do their homework all the time. It's no different than anybody else out there. You know I mean, it's like just because there's these ideals that we put out there in this community that we work together towards, it doesn't mean that all comes together perfectly in our household. 
That's what's so funny. It's a struggle for us all of the time. We have two teenage kids, a boy and a girl. And like I said, it's one of the most humbling things I've ever experienced. You know, like I said to you, it's our job to constantly remind the people of things, say those things to our kids and our coworkers or the people that are in our charge, remind them of those things constantly. And once they're sick of hearing them, and I'm so sick of saying it, that's when you know it's starting to stick. My wife and I don't necessarily get the desired behaviors that we want from our kids all of the time, but when you know things are going okay is when other adults come up to you and say, hey, your son's the most polite person I've ever met in my life. He's so wonderful to talk to. And uh, gosh, whose kid are they talking about? But they're talking <laughs> about yours. So, I mean, I would be such a liar if I told you that, oh yeah, you know, my kid's because we're all just people. We're trying to figure it out as parents and they're trying to figure it out as kids. And in a really difficult age, I think for kids, I think that being a teenager is impossible for one. And I think nowadays it's even harder because social media and stuff like that, it can really work against their self-esteem. Kids can say anything they want to them any time of the day and it's hard. But, you know, we do our best with that stuff and we try to figure it out as parents every single day. But if I told you that we've got a fully involved family where everything's working all the time, uh, no. <laughs> you know, we have our moments where things are great, and then we have our moments where you know we're super frustrated with each other. You blogged about it being okay for firefighters to not always be fully involved. You were asked that, I think, early on. For example, like over a long shift, adrenal fatigue, poor sleep prior to shift, trying to get a nap in to help carry you through. What advice can you offer to captains in regards to navigating ways to ensure you know their members are at the best on any given day, but you're not going to get every single person being at their elite best every day. Well, I think you just have to be really in tune with your people. And that comes from meeting with them and knowing what makes them tick and knowing them down to a very deep personal level. And not everybody's going to want to get into that, but we're so close to each other as coworkers and really family members because we spend so much time together. Every once in a while, I work at a fire station where crews don't eat together. And I hate that. That's so important that we spend time together because that really helps us get in tune with who we are. And the more time you spend with each other, you get really good at reading people's feelings and reading their emotions. And then when things are off or they're tired or something else is going on with them, you can check in with them. And it's okay to do that. But you really have to be super observant of your people. In addition to that, have people within your crew that are in tune to that too, where if you're not seeing the cues that someone comes to you and says, hey, I think something's off with so-and-so. You might want to talk to him or I talk to him and we need to give them a break today. They had a really bad night. They got stuff going on at home. If they're at work, they have to be able to function when we have to be able to function, right? They have to be able to go on calls. They have to be able to go to training and things like that. But in the in-between, if there's discretionary time stuff that doesn't need to get done immediately and we can put something off to another day, yeah, we move stuff around just to keep people healthy. But anymore, the fire service has gotten so busy where we're doing so many things every single day. It's hard to get that downtime. And sometimes you do need to fight for it. Sometimes you do need to call your battalion chief and say, hey, I got this going on with my people. They need a break. They've been at work for 96 hours straight, and they've been up all four nights in a row. They haven't slept in four days. They need a break. So you've got to be able to stand up for your people. Has anyone around you on or off the job been touched by physical or mental health challenges? And how have you navigated in the way you can? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, sort of in retrospect, it's hard because you don't always recognize it. And I think the mental and emotional health has been brought to the forefront only really recently. To me, in any event, it just seems like it's really getting some traction lately. Um, and yeah, I've known a number of firefighters who have had problems with addiction, either alcohol or you know, drugs or 
emotional things, and you can try to steer them in the right direction to get help, but ultimately it's kind of their choice. You try to put it in the right direction, but they have to make the decision to get the help and be accepting of that help. So that's always been a hard one for me. And those things are tough to kick. Like once some of those things take hold of you, you know, drug addiction or alcohol addiction, those are really, really hard things to kick. But you got to have the courage to step up and say something if something's going on and be supportive of those people. And if they're showing up to work and not doing the right thing, then you absolutely have to step in and intervene and get those people the help that they need. And it's sad because when I was coming up in the fire service, there would be people that would get off work and go straight to the bar and start drinking. We just thought it was something that they did. It was just, it wasn't weird, but it was because they were dealing with something, whatever it was. But yeah, I have known people that were touched by it. And there's people who have lost their jobs because of it. And I also have people that I know who have gone through it and are back on the job and they're thriving right now. It, it kind of runs the gamut. But yeah, we have an obligation to support them as best we can. But those people that have those issues, whatever they are, if we step in and try to get them help, they have an obligation to try to get better themselves and work towards it too. How have you become self-critical and critical of others in a healthy and sustainable way? Well, I've always been super self-critical. Growing up, the way that I grew up and being surrounded by the people that I was surrounded by and being in athletics, you're always striving to be better and you're never satisfied with those types of things. And so usually when I make a mistake at work or you know, in training or something like that, I'm pretty hard on myself. But yeah, there definitely is a healthy way to do it. I've just tried to chalk a lot of stuff up as learning experiences. And if I don't know something, it's not because I'm dumb or inferior or anybody is. I look at it as a coaching moment, a teaching moment. Like I said, the same goes for other people too. Like if I've got somebody on my crew that doesn't know something or we've got crews anywhere that don't know something, it's a learning opportunity. There's just too many things that we're responsible for in this job to possibly be experts at everything. And so... I try not to be too critical of others in terms of performance because I know in five minutes something's going to happen that I may or may not have any reference point for it. And I can look really stupid, <laughs> you know, and it's pretty easy to look stupid in our job. So yeah, I just try to be supportive of people and look at it as every day is an opportunity to learn and it's a rich learning environment and we got to treat it that way. But occasionally there's going to be tough conversations that have to be had. Do you have any advice for captains that have to have tough conversations with not only their members, but say they're in a multi-truck station with other captains or with managers above them. What's the best way to approach that? Well, I think that the best way to approach any tough conversations that you have to have is, you know, people are much more receptive to listening to you during those tough conversations. If you're in a leadership role, if they know that you care about them and you have to demonstrate that you care about them through your everyday actions with them, you know, being interested in, in who they are as a person, caring about their personal growth and development than the organization, caring about their families, and having it be genuine interest, being invested in them as a person. And then if they know that you really do care about their growth and development, then you can have those tough conversations and it doesn't become something where it's just coming at them because you're coming at them. And like I said, if you have to have those tough conversations, from my perspective, there are very few people I really think, and maybe I'm naive, I don't know, but I, I think that there's very few people that really set out to do malicious things at work, especially given the fact that the type of people that we hire in the fire service, I don't think that there's a lot of people that set out to really be malicious. I think that, that sometimes we have people that do things that are inappropriate or immature because they think they're being funny or they don't know what the rules are. And again, if, if someone's getting out of line 
I look at it first as a learning opportunity, but if they continue to do it, if, if they're a habitual line stepper, then we've got something else to deal with. So there's different avenues for that. But I think that if you approach it from a standpoint of, hey, I care about you, and if you care about us as a crew, we're going to get whatever it is straightened out if you have to have those tough conversations. And I think that people will straighten out. But if they won't, that's what progressive discipline's for. There is that, I guess, if you remove every barrier and make everything available and remove every excuse, then the tough love happens. Right. Well, it's the same thing with kids. I can give you every tool that you need, but you got to pick them up and use them. It's just like I said earlier, you can leave a horse of water, but you can't make a drink. So that can bring people a lot of peace and dial back a lot of the frustration when you know you've done what you could and you can wipe your hands of what your ownership is and accountability is and then sleep at night. It doesn't make it any easier. Those situations throughout my life where I've had people that I've tried to help and, and tried to influence and tried to show the right way, and they just don't respond to it. And if they're not responding to you, you can try to introduce them to somebody else who might be able to speak to them. But at, at some point, there's just a certain disconnect with certain people where they just, you can't reach them. There are departments that are becoming dominated by firefighters that are both young in years and young in years of service. Do you think they're at threat for not having true mentors within their own departments? I kind of see where the cliques can start mentoring each other with not the most accurate information. As far as there being an influx of youth in the fire service, yeah, absolutely. And, and that can be a good thing. It actually is a good thing. The important thing to remember, and something that I wasn't very good at when I was younger, um, and I'm still working on it, valuing the senior people in the organization and really listening to what they have to say and taking it to heart. Because I think that when you're young, sometimes, at least this is my case, when I was new in the fire service, I knew everything, and the old people weren't interested in what we wanted to do, blah, 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 all that stuff. It's a common refrain, right? Get out of the way. And it is sometimes problematic when people zoom to the tops of organizations or into recognized leadership positions if they don't have a ton of life experience. And in the absence of that, they have to be extremely open to input from others. And, you know, at a certain point, they have to make decisions, absolutely, because they have a sense of that position, but they have to be humble enough to listen to the input from others. And people that have time in the organization have to care about the organization and the fire service as a whole. They have to care enough about what we're doing as a group to speak up and say something, but it takes open minds on both ends. And I think that that's the hard thing sometimes for especially people younger in the fire service, men especially, because we're so ego-driven, that it's hard as a young firefighter who wants to kick and push and do things and climb that ladder, you have to be humble enough to listen to what the older people have to say and their life experience and somehow get those two ideals to line up so that we're seeing things through the same eyes. I think that that's the biggest issue I see is that people want to come in and they want to change the world simply for change's sake. And change for the sake of change only is not good. Change for the better or change for a valid reason, that's good. But it just, just coming in to change things just to prove that you're the boss and walking around and pissing on all the furniture to prove that you own it, that doesn't work. So what kind of filters should those people put their new ideas through internally within themselves before they start championing them outside with that kind of passion? Well, I think that they should find people that they connect with that have you know, some time in the organization. Um, if we're talking about younger people trying to get ideas pushed through and find out, hey, what's a good way to kind of pitch this thing? How do we sell it? Uh, what have your experiences been with this? And then get the buy-in from people that have been around for a little bit. Because if you've got the buy-in of your people in your organization and you're a young person, I mean, there's no stopping you, right? 
if you can get the senior people to buy what you're selling and if it's a good thing and you have a way of communicating with them where you make those older people feel like they have value, I think that that's the hard thing. I think that sometimes we devalue the senior people in the organizations because the older people in the organization aren't always the most engaged people in the organization, but they nonetheless have a ton of value and a lot of institutional knowledge, and they can make implementing your ideas a whole lot easier or a whole lot harder if they want to. And it's all about how we engage them. It all stems from communication and trust. And if we're communicating with them effectively, we trust each other, then that stuff will go. But if we don't, and there's skepticism, or we feel that people have ulterior motives, then it's not going to work. There can't be any hidden agenda. Overall, do you think the fire-related YouTube videos, social media, have been a benefit or a detriment to the fire service? Are they fostering, promoting, and allowing for constructive dialogue, or is it muddying the waters too much? I think there's absolute value in it. There's so much stuff that you have access to where you can watch fire behavior, you can watch tactics, you can watch this. And as long as you're respectful in your dialogue about it, it's invaluable. We didn't have access to this stuff at all when I got hired. I mean, we watched American Heat. That was it. You know, <laughs> we watched these old videos. But in terms of those knuckleheads that chime in on those things, call people names and bash people's tactics and stuff, there's no value in that. And as stated previously, in five minutes, I'm going to make a mistake. So that's why I really try to be tactful in how I discuss those types of things. And you try to be sort of delicate with it. In terms of them being learning tools, yes, absolutely. What I see out there is when people post videos on social media anymore and they invite dialogue about it, they make sure that the ground rules are keep it respectful. And that's one of the things I'm really careful about on my page. And that's why I don't engage in the whole tactics and strategy stuff on my pages because it's too much refereeing you have to do because people get in there and they'll get into these personal bickering matches and, and it just becomes something that's stupid. So, you know, if you're not going to keep it respectful, you're not going to keep it positive, you can go find someplace else to troll. Go hassle somebody else or get banned from a page. You can have differing opinions, absolutely. I'm not afraid of differing opinions. I mean, not everybody's going to agree with everybody, but, you know, there's a respectful way to communicate with each other. And, and I think that, you know, being so far away and not having that personal interface and just being on a keyboard, it's really easy for it to get ugly really quickly. There's things that people will say to each other online that they would never say to somebody with their face because they'd get their teeth knocked out. As far as that goes, I don't engage in that stuff at all. But in terms of it being a positive learning tool, yeah, I think if it's done the right way, it's invaluable. I mean, because I see fires from other places where they go to a lot of work. It's like, oh, cool. How would we do this? You know, oh, look at what they did there. Oh, we might do this, we might do that based upon you know, our staffing and our tactics. I think it's great. And it gets people talking about the job. I think that's the best part about it. If you do it right, it gets people talking about the job. Look at this. Oh, hey, they had this. Think this can't ever happen here? Watch this. Don't we have the same type of construction here? Sure. And this is what happened to these people, and let's learn from it. Whether you've chosen to interact with the negative comments or negative feedback that you may have seen come your way, how have you digested it and continued to move forward? Has it been tough at all? Well, I think it's always tough when you have criticisms directed at you, and I don't mind criticism, but what I don't like are personal attacks, and that does happen occasionally. You know, people just don't agree with you, and they're having a bad day, and they come at you super hard, but generally speaking, what's kind of cool, if there is somebody that gets off-leash on any of the sites that I have, I just leave it alone, and I let the community handle it. It's kind of a nice thing. They jump in, and they're all over whatever they've said. If it's obnoxious, they police it and generally they wear them out. I don't have the energy for that and I don't really care. I'm not interested. We know what we're trying to do as a community and it's not self-aggrandizing. It's something that we're trying to do together. And if people accuse me of that, and they have, 
there are some sites out there that will troll you. Their sole purpose is to talk shit about other firefighters. It's actually pathetic, but I don't engage in it. Like I said, the community usually handles it, which is nice. It's almost a nice metaphor for a firefighter around their own department that the goal shouldn't be to be liked by every single person, but maybe have enough people at every kitchen table that would stand up in your defense if you weren't there to do it for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I can talk shit about my brother, but you can't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's like, if I want to talk shit about my family member, I can, but you can't. And, and we're going to fight if you do. And that's the thing. I mean, we need to circle the wagons around each other and, and really celebrate what's good in the fire service. And, you know, that includes if someone has the guts to post a video or something of a fire that they went to where things didn't go perfectly and put it out there so other people can learn from it. That's something to be celebrated as well. It's not, hey, look at these idiots. Look at what these dumb shits did. No, it's like, hey, look, these people put this out there as a learning opportunity for us so that we can do better so that we don't make a mistake. One of the things that I tried to live by as a firefighter, as a company officer, a captain who I really looked up to said, aggressive companies don't make mistakes they make decisions. And if you look at how limited our information is, generally speaking, when we arrive on scene, and if we're going to be effective and try to make a difference in a condensed time frame with all of these different things coming at us, and our emotional state being what it is, what we can see and what we can hear and process, you make a decision based upon the best information possible at the time. Only in retrospect can it be deemed a mistake. You went with it, and given the facts that you received, sitting in an air-conditioned room two or three days later, you can only say, okay, well, I probably should have done this differently, given what I know now. But given this set of circumstances, we went with this because that was the best decision based on the best information we had at the time. When I look at videos and things like that, I'm like, okay, well, what did they see? And what were they presented with? Okay, I can see where they went that way. And it's easy for me to sit there and say, okay, well, I know this and I know that. And I'm sitting in my chair in my office at, at my computer. It's, it's easy to stand in judgment of people. So I would want to be extended that same grace if, if people are looking at videos of a fire that I arrive on. I make mistakes too, in retrospect, you know? When we're on scene, we're making decisions together, and everybody wants to do a good job. And nobody shows up at any kind of an incident and wants to fuck it up. Are there any specific calls that sort of stand out for you as keystone moments or teachable moments that might benefit someone else? Yeah. I mean, I think about the first fire that I went to. I yanked a line and ran to the house all by myself and did tell my captain where I was going and didn't have a radio and was on like half a cylinder of air or less. And I thought I was doing the right thing. And that was a totally teachable moment. There's just so many. Those occur all the time. And it's those epiphanies where I go, oh, yeah, I didn't tell him this. And, and usually what it is is I'm thinking something based upon my knowledge, skills, and abilities and my years on the job. And we've got someone that's younger that's never experienced that situation. And you got to resist the urge to over-communicate. That's my thing. I always feel like sometimes I'm talking too much and trying to communicate what we need to do when we arrive on scene. But unless you're working somewhere where you go to jobs all the time, we have to do a lot of talking. And everybody makes fun of me because when we drive around town, I talk about, oh, we had a fire here, we had a fire there. And it's usually the same building. Um, <laughs> but I kind of make it a joke where like every time we drive past this one building, I'm like, hey, we had a fire in this building and this is the type of construction. But I do it with my rookies that I work with every single time so they remember, hey, it's this type of construction. We had a fire in this building. It's a common act. That's sort of thing. I kind of do it as a joke, but it makes me seem like I'm senile. <laughs> but every moment's a teachable moment, especially given how young we are becoming as a fire service and the infrequency with which some of us go to fires. I start to forget that over the course of 21 years, if you go to five or six fires a year, 
that's actually a decent amount of fires. You've actually gone to a couple. So you actually might know something. And so I was kind of laughing about that the other day. I'm like, oh, this fire and that fire and this fire and that fire. And I thought myself and said, shit, I don't work for a super busy department in terms of volume of fire, but you, know, you, you spend some time on the job. There's a lot of teachable moments. And I think that we need to not tell war stories, but sell those teachable moments. We went to this fire. We learned this. We learned that. Because there's always something that we learn from every fire that you go to, every opportunity to teach. You know, I try to do it. And sometimes, like I said, you know, you get tired of listening to yourself talk, but, you know, when you've been around for a little bit and you've had your head in the game, you do have some stuff to say and people want to hear it. And you got to give yourself credit for that sometimes. Do you think it's possible to have an effective team when there's members on the crew that don't like each other? Yes, because you don't have to like somebody, but you have to respect them. And you have to have respect for what we do in the bigger picture. That's abundantly clear in team sports. You can see that all the time where there's personalities that don't get along, but you know, we have to put those things aside and be able to do the job. We don't have to hang out together. We don't have to be friends, but we have to respect each other and respect what we're doing and be able to get the job done. But yeah, I, I absolutely firmly believe that you have the ability to have an effective team, even if the personalities don't totally jive. Tougher, I guess, with maybe a smaller crew or a single truck haul than it would be with a larger company. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not fun. I'm not saying that living together is going to be fun. But yeah, you can show up and come together on emergency scenes and be effective in that way, but station life might not be bliss. For me, it's much more important to be respected than it is to be liked. And if you respect somebody, you can put some of those things aside. You can sit there and say, okay, I don't get along with this person, but I respect what they bring to the table and they have these strengths. Okay, I can deal with it. You know, I talk about respect leads to admiration. Admiration leads to modeling. Modeling leads to cultural change. And if you respect somebody, there's some level of like in there. You'll give each other a high five when you do things right. That may lead to friendships, but I don't think you have to like everybody in order to have an effective team. No, you have to respect each other. It can be a great job no matter what crew you drop into, but it's amazing if you all vibe. Oh, sure. And you do have those crews. I've been very fortunate in that I've really enjoyed in different ways every crew that I've ever been a part of, all different types of personalities, and didn't always get along with everybody and didn't always see eye to eye with everybody, but we found, again, ways to come together when we needed to. But it was never something where people didn't feel included. You know, we had different personalities, but we always ate meals together. We always did everything together. In the smaller stations, yeah, it is more difficult, but, you know, you just got to find a way to come together. Larger departments. Mostly they're split into divisions that share the workload so that all the mandates can be addressed and achieved most effectively. Why is it expected of the suppression rescue division to do part of the work of other divisions? In terms of performing the support functions that need to happen to make a department go? Do you feel like it's watering down our ability to really spend the time we need to do to focus on what our main mandate as the suppression rescue division? Yeah, I think that it is difficult, but given the decreasing numbers that we have in terms of suppression personnel, because people are really starting to examine the numbers, and they're starting to apply a business model to the fire suppression model, and they want us to be busy. But it waters down our ability to be as effective and trained with all that stuff? Absolutely. Because you can't ask me to do 100 things and expect me to be good at all of them. And if you give me 100 things, I can give 1% to each one of them, or I can give you know 100% to a couple of things. I just think that that's something that we're saddled with and something that isn't going to go away and we have to find a way to be effective within the new business model. Do I enjoy it? Not necessarily, but do we have to figure out a way to deal with it? Yes. And I think that that's the theme, whether you're in the United States or Canada, no matter the size of your department, 
more stuff is getting pushed down to the station level because budgets are shrinking. And some agencies don't see the value in having a robust response to fires. They're focused on other things. And so as much as they can push down to our level and until they find a breaking point, they're going to continue to do it. We just have to find ways to deal with it. As strong company officers, though, you have to be able to push back if you can't accomplish all the work. You have to respectfully let people know why you can't get that work done. But it, it's a problem everywhere. So adopting the pushback on everything model isn't going to work because it's not going anywhere. So you're just basically picking your battles. Yeah, pick your battles. And if it's something that compromises your crew's safety or health or it, it compromises your effectiveness or the way that you can interact with the public and deliver your service, then those are the things you really need to push back against. It's difficult, though. I mean, we're going through some really difficult times in terms of what a lot of fire departments are asking their people to do and the amount of hours in the day. But we have to find a way to support the organizational mission and support our people as well. But it's not easy to do. I mean, I get around quite a bit. I see it all over the place. And it's a frustration for people. Yeah, it's great to have that 30,000-foot view, I think, of the service because you do have the opportunity to travel across the country and now soon internationally. Well, it's interesting that you say the 30,000-foot view because you'll hear a lot of fire chiefs say that. I like to think that I'm still at the grassroots level. Most of the people that I see are firefighters, firefighters and company officers. I see some battalion chiefs. I don't see a whole lot of fire chiefs coming to the presentations that I do. But, you know, I I actually heard a fire chief say one time that I'm at a 30,000-foot level and, you know, I've got my eye on the horizon and, and this is what I'm doing and I, 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 and me, me, me. And I actually stopped him. I said, hey, chief, you know what? I fly around the country a lot. And cruising altitude for most of the aircraft that I fly in is like 34, 35,000 feet. And you know what are invisible at 35,000 feet? He goes, no, what? And I said, people. And that's one of the things that we really can't lose sight of is, you know, you like to think that you're above some of that stuff. But no matter how high you go in the organization, you're accountable to your people. And you have an obligation to make sure that they're taken care of. So sometimes there's a disconnect with that. Chiefs are saddled with some difficult things sometimes, and they're asked to do a lot. But they have to have the stones to stand up and say, you know what, this isn't going to be right for our people. And we can't do all of these things you're asking us to do. We can do a couple of them, but we can't do all of them. But that's not who we are as firefighters. You know, we just say yes to everything, and then we try to figure it out, you know. So it's it's a blessing and a curse. You know, I mean, we've got really hard workers, but then we bite off more than we can choose sometimes. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up framed in the organizational level. I guess what I was driving at is you get to see overarching lines drawn through the service as a whole, commonalities that we're all dealing with. So that's more of a service-wide view than a within my own department or my own crew view. No, and I think that it's important for us to realize, too, that those things that are going on within the walls of our organization are the same things that are going on everywhere. I would hazard to say that if you went to France and had the same talk with some of the firefighters there, they'd share some of the same frustrations that we have. It's universal. But yeah, you know, when you mentioned the 30,000 foot thing, sure, I get a good look at what's going on in a lot of different departments. But when you posed it to me that way, it triggered that memory. I remember, you know, you're up that high, you got to land. And come into the station and talk to your people. And if you really do care about what they have to say, listen to what they have to say and start working towards making things better by your people sometimes. It can't always just be, we're doing this, and the change happens. You mentioned how important eating together is. If you're on a 24-hour shift, at least doing one meal. So let me hit you with a few other preferences. Shared dorms or separate rooms? Having your own dorm is cool because it's nice, it's quiet and everything, but... Open dorms at the stations that I worked at when we had open dorms, which we don't have any anymore in my department, they're fun. 
the bells had hit. We'd all get up together, and one guy was sleeping. You'd go over and kick his bed and wake him up. Or you'd hide underneath somebody's bed and grab their feet when they went to get in it or throw things at each other. It was just fun. I live in San Jose. I'm pretty sure that they rebuilt their downtown station, and they were going to put individual dorms in there, and the crews there asked that they keep the dorms open. I think they have partitions in there, but overall it's like an open dormitory, I think. They wanted it that way because that was how it was. And plus, I don't think that those crews on Engine 1 and Truck 1 and Battalion 1 sleep at all anyway, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. They're, they're running all the time. Right, so. right. They're busy. Rotating positions or know your role and stay in your lane? Know your role, stay in your lane, but learn the positions around you and be able to step up. Do you guys do rotating positions? We would rotate between driver and the two positions in the back of the truck. Oh, okay. That's different. I was thinking rotating like company officer because there's certain departments where they rotate all three. Oh, I see. But as far as like what you guys do for that, sure, do that. Do you guys have promoted engineers though? No. Okay. So we have engineers of promotion for us. Everybody has to know how to drive and know how to pump. You know, my thing is, I think, know your role, be good at it, be ready to step into it when you need to step into it, but be prepared for it. Rotating positions, I think that there's sometimes where there's people who want to step up into a role. They say they're ready, but they're not prepared, and you need to be prepared. The rotating thing, I think it has its advantages. And you can tell me how it works for you guys. Do you find value in it? Just looking at the model of you have engine crews and truck crews, and then you've got rescue crews. Our model would be you could be on an engine one day or on the aerial the next day or on the squad the next day, as long as you've had some training in it. But then you're expected, obviously, to be at 100% on each of those trucks. So there's a lot more to remember. So looking at some of the American models where you're a truckie and you're a truckie, and that's what you do, just trying to get a feel for people's preference versus the jack-of-all-trades or you try to master one. I'm kind of a master one and then move on. That's why I say stay in your lane learn that one, and then learn the roles around you too and be ready to step up when it's time to step up. But we try to be that Leatherman super tool. That, to me, waters down a lot of stuff. I know I love it when we had a rescue company that showed up and they were our hazmat technicians and all that stuff. I felt so much more comfortable when they were showing up. Great people in our hazmat program now. Don't get me wrong at all. And we do really well with that stuff. But we had people that were specialized in certain areas, and it felt really good when they showed up. When our truck company shows up, I know that technical rescue stuff is going to happen. And so that's where I'm coming from with that. Crew workouts or solo? Crew. But if you don't do crew, solo. Do you tend to do that within your own crew as often as possible? We did. We work out together now at the same time at our station, but we don't do the same workout. People are into different things. But when I was working as a newly promoted captain, we did workouts together, and it was awesome. If you're not going to work out and do the same workout, working out at the same time is good, too. And make sure that everybody's doing it. Doing something, you know. Smooth bore or fog nozzle? Smooth. But I've never had a fire knock out with a fog nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for ease of handling and ease of deployment and big flows, I was raised on a fog nozzle, and I didn't know any different until I went and took some classes where I'm like, oh, gosh, this is a lot easier to move. This is a lot easier to handle. And, wow, we're putting a lot of water on it. You know, but as far as, like, that stuff goes, I'm not diehard either way. I'll say smooth because that's what we do now. All of our... Interior firefighting is on smooth boards now, and we fight car fires with fog nozzles. Um, but as stated previously, I'd never had a fire not go out with a fog nozzle. Kind of that Ford and Chevy debate. You know, it's like there's, there's people that are diehard Ford people and diehard Chevys. It's like, well, I'm not going to get a fight with you because I drive a Chevy. You drive a Ford. I mean, I don't care. They both are effective. They both do the same thing. But people get so parochial about that stuff and so in your face, and it's just weird to me. 
what's the best nozzle in the world? You know, the one you're on. What's the best? <laughs> true. <laughs> what do you got in your hand? You better know how to use it, and you better be good at it. Yeah, so, true, true. You know, yeah, so. this is why I asked the question. <laughs> Two and a half inch line, interior, exterior, or both? Both. We do both. We teach our people to do both. You know, if we've got a heavy volume of fire, we'll pull a two and a half and knock it down from the outside and then put more crews on the line and advance it inside if, if we need to. We train on both. Truck, engine, or rescue? Ooh, that's going to be a hard one because I'm going to piss a lot of people off. I'm an engine guy. I was on the truck for four years. I really liked it. And after I got off the truck, we got a 100-foot tractor-drawn aerial, um, which makes me really excited on one hand for our department and sad on the other because I never got to work on it. And it's awesome. Every time it goes by, my jaw drops. But I like engine work. I think engines are the workhorses in our department, along with our medic units. They do the lion's share of the work. We get most of the calls. I like being busy. I like going on calls. I like the ability to be first in and make decisions as an engine captain. I like that challenge and being able to go inside. And when a truck company cuts a hole in the roof and we're inside fighting the fire, I can look up through the hole and look up at the real firefighters. (laughs) Nice. And lastly, uh, acronyms, yay or nay? They have their place, but we get a little crazy with them. I think they're good reminders for some people. They don't work for everybody, but I think we get a little nutty with acronyms. We can get a little out of control with them. But I think they have their place, yes. Yes, acronym. So where can people seek you out on social media, and where can they find out where your calendar is for traveling around doing conferences? There is no calendar. They can find me on Fully Involved blog on Facebook. They can also find me at Fully Involved Official on Instagram. But if I really had my shit together, I'd have a website and a calendar and all kinds of stuff. But as stated previously, this is a work in progress. I've been basically falling face first into this thing for about five years now. (laughs) I've been working on a lines for a book. I've had a a chapter outline for probably a couple of years. And as I fly around, I've got pages and pages and pages of notes on stuff that are ideas for the book. And I'd like to get it going. But it's just a question of finding the motivation to do it and finding the time. I just need to lose my fear of writing again. Back in the day, I used to write quite a bit, write much longer pieces. Now with the way that things work on social media, it's gotten to be sound bites, which I swore I would never do. It's just stringing a bunch of cogent thoughts together and trying to get together. But yeah, I've got some ideas for a book and I'm going to try to put something together, hopefully in the not too distant future. But somebody stole the title for my book. When I was at FDIC last year, Frank Fiscuso stopped me and he goes, hey, did you see this? And I said, no, what? And he said, somebody wrote a book called Fully Involved Leadership. And I <laughs> goes, did you know that? And I said, no. That's interesting. So I got to come up with a new title. It can't be Fully Involved Leadership. Somebody beat me to that. It seems to be common across the service as a whole. If you've thought about something that there's bound to be some other person that's thinking about it at the same time you are. We've been stopping around this planet as a species for long enough that there's no such thing as original thought anymore, right? So like you said, if you have an idea or, or something or, or you got an idea from someplace else, give credit to them. But there are very few original ideas anymore. If you're thinking it, somebody else has thought it or struggled with it. Just have conversations about it then. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. Well, I appreciate you struggling through all the times we've had to reschedule to make this happen. It was great. Oh, dude, I hope so. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. And I appreciate your tenacity in making sure that it happened. Um, so I'm just appreciative that people like you do this and ask me to be on it because I'm just a guy trying to figure it out every single day, just like everybody else is. I'll uh, see you in June. Absolutely, dude. Yeah, we'll have a beer together. Wicked. All right, see ya. All right, man. Be good. Be good.